a certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? Bhikkhus, it's because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. And then he goes on to describe what seven? Mindfulness, investigation of dharmas, energy, rapture or joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So then the bhikkhu says again, Venerable Sir, it says wise and alert, wise and alert. In what way is one called wise and alert? Bhikkhus, it is because one has developed the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called wise and alert. And he went on, I do not see even one other thing that when cultivated and developed leads to abandonment of things that fetter than the seven factors of enlightenment. They lead those who act upon them to the complete destruction of suffering, to knowledge, enlightenment, and to Nibbāna. So these are the qualities that I'd like to talk about tonight. Sally talked about the use of the jhanic factors to counteract the hindrances, to free us from the things that obstruct our being able to see clearly. And the seven factors of enlightenment also counteract the hindrances, and they're very beautiful in eight qualities of mind, each with a unique contribution to awakening. And whether you've been aware of them or not, We've been gradually cultivating them since we've been here. They've already been set in motion as we've been practicing. And the beauty and the power of this particular type of practice that we're doing is that we start to notice them more and more clearly and to understand how it's possible to strengthen them and to balance them and to bring them to further development so that they'll really benefit our practice and take us to more freedom. They're often described in a linear sequence, like I talked about them just then. And the, with mindfulness, or sati, as the foundation of all of them that sets the whole cascade in motion. And they do progress one out of another, naturally out of the preceding one. But we can also weave back and forth and learn how to balance each one and how there are different feedback loops. And I'd like to talk about them in both ways this evening. There are three of the factors are arousing factors. They bring energy to our practice. And these, they're on your sheet of paper also that Sally gave you. These are Dhamma-Vichaya, investigation, energy, virya, and piti, rapture. Those are the arousing qualities. And then the three calming ones, pasadi, tranquility, samadhi, and upeka, equanimity.
We can discuss each one, and I will do, and also go back and forth. But this evening, I'm not going to spend too much time on mindfulness and concentration because they're so much a part of the rest of our teachings here. What I'd like to do particularly is, for myself, pay attention to them as I talk. So, for example, as the energy gets up and I start to talk faster, a little bit of discriminating Um, investigation will come in that will remind me that that's not so beneficial and I might pause and bring a little calm in so then a little concentration and equanimity will develop and also what I'd like to invite you to do as I mention each one is to perhaps see how it's expressing itself for you right now to notice how it's manifesting perhaps in your practice today, and also in, in um, your awareness in this moment. For all of them, what the Buddha taught was to, first of all, know if they're present or not. Are they present or absent? And he describes this in detail in the Satipatthana Sutta, the mindfulness of breathing, how to notice whether they're absent or present. If you notice that they're absent, then to know what to do to cultivate them so that they'll arise. And if they're present, to know what to do to make them develop even more fully and strengthen them. So those three aspects that we'll look at as we, as we talk about them. Contemplating them doesn't mean that you have to relinquish your, the breath, the primary object of your attention. Just as you continue to keep the breath in mind as you're listening and as you're walking and as you're being here right now, in the same way, you can be aware of these different qualities as I talk about them. Consciously paying attention to them enhances them. And we do that as we practice anyway. And it actually is a beautiful thing that by simply directing our attention without having to do anything, already that appreciation of the qualities encourages the cascade to get set in motion. So sati, mindfulness, the first one that we're really is the beginning of our practice, the foundation that underlies all of it. There's no other factor as powerful as careful attention. Here, our mindfulness is immersed in the breath. And we can see that there's this precise, clear knowing that comes with mindfulness. It's steady and continuous, open and receptive. And mindfulness is really the bridge between the hindrances and the factors of awakening. We use mindful, the more mindful we are, the more that starves the hindrances. The more mindful we are, the more that feeds the seven factors of enlightenment. And so it benefits, just bringing more mindfulness benefits the awareness in that way. And with mindfulness, we're not trying to change our experience. It's a non-interfering presence. It's simply to see what's here. And it's the pivot point or the fulcrum for um, the factors of awakening. So the arising, the arousing factors are on, on one side and the 
um, calming factors are on the other side, and mindfulness is what helps us see where we need to balance. And it also um, acts as a balance um, in many other ways. Um, For example, with the five faculties which are on that list, it balances energy and concentration in the same way, and faith and wisdom. The seven factors of enlightenment are said to take us from the near to the far shore. And if you're imagining traveling to the far shore, mindfulness is what keeps us on course to get there by balancing each of the other qualities. So what supports our mindfulness is simply to keep inclining to paying attention, diligence and mindful attention, full attention. So when our mindfulness is, begins to get a little stronger, we also bring in discriminating wisdom, Dhamma Vichaya. It comes from the root, the root um, I think it's Vincinati, Vincinati, which is a combination of investigation and discrimination, investigation of dhammas. It's that interest that helps us stay, and it also um, provides that little bit of wisdom. So the sort of old example um, from the teachings, or not from the teachings, the old example from one of my teachers was the monk who's sitting in his kuti meditating and the kuti catches on fire. And mindfulness says, warmer, getting warmer, hot, very hot, funny smell in the air. Dhamma says, funny smell equals burning hair, um, of more benefit to leave than to stay. So it shows us what's beneficial in our practice and what's not. It helps us discriminate. So for example, um, today, some of you may have noticed that your mind was wandering, and then you might, mindfulness shows you that. The Dhamma Vichaya brings you a little closer and looks at what's going on. Oh, where I lose it is the end of the, is the end of the out-breath. The connection gets lost at the end of the out-breath. And the Dhamma Vichaya comes in and helps us pay more attention in that place. So we can make the intention to pay more attention there. So it's using skillful means in our practice to distinguish what's of benefit and what's not. So we might notice that we're feeling really discouraged and irritable, and that mindfulness shows us that. And then if we begin to look a little closer, we see that what's going on is that every time we, we lose the breath as a judgment, and there's a judgment. And so then that noticing that there's judging, oh, when I don't judge, there's relaxation, there's ease. Every time there's a judgment, there's contraction. And another way um, you might notice is another, say you're feeling um, discouraged or impatient, and then the Dhamma Vichaya says, oh, I'm comparing to last retreat. At this time on the last retreat, I was in this, this, this and this state, and now I'm not. So we begin to see a little bit more closely what it is that's causing a block. So we're using um, this interested attention to bring understanding and show a possibility of choice.
it shows us what leads to wisdom and what doesn't. King Melinda um, of the Bactria um, went to um, Nagasena, the wise bhikkhu in that time, and said, by how many of the factors awakening does one actually awaken? And Nagasena said, just one, investigation of the Dharma. So investigation is the sword of discrimination that cuts through. But he went on to say, if the sword is placed in the sheath and not grasped in the hand, is it able to cut through? The king didn't know. And he said, no, the other six factors are needed to unsheath the sword. And so all of the factors are working together. So then it helps us discriminate and see more clearly the component parts of what's going on. Is there wanting and striving? How exactly is, um, is this revealing itself? Sometimes, if there's too much investigation, it can lead to agitation and more mental activity and get out of balance. And so the mindfulness helps look at that and notice that that's what's happening. The ways we cultivate are to reflect and bring in a little more interest. One of the ways it says in the suttas is to associate with the wise and avoid the unwise and to reflect on the deeper aspects of the Dharma. And also to intentionally incline our mind towards that, to bring in a little more interest in the breath, to just look a little more clearly at what's going on. And it's a wonderful also antidote to doubt, because um, frequent attention to it is generating energy and also is bringing in wisdom. And when there's too little, we fall into confusion. The more interest there is, it's a positive feedback loop. The more interest there is, the more we want to look and see. The more we shine the light and see things and begin to understand, the more we want to understand. And that increasing energy um, is the next quality, the next factor of awakening, virya. And virya is really wholehearted engagement. So maybe just aware of what your energy is like in this moment. Just notice how it is in your body and how it's just how it is for you right now. If I pay attention to myself, I notice, well, it's a little out of balance. There's a little too much energy. The sort of adrenaline is a little too much. So it helps to notice what's the balance. Really, it's the discourses describe it as this unshaken energy, this enthusiasm that brings us into our practice. And we need an initial phase of energy to get us into the hall, to bring us in from our room, to get us out of bed at five in the morning, whatever it is. And then we, we need a con- continuation of the energy. It's like um, a keeping, we need to keep connecting. So we've connected with the breath, 
but we need to keep doing it over and over. So there's this initial phase, and then there's the phase of continuity that has to keep going. And then the sustaining of that connecting until the energy becomes effortless. And it's an art, this balancing and sustaining of energy. Gentle interest all day is much more effective than these sort of quick bursts of pushing it that sometimes we can get into. So it's a very light touch, but all the time, continuous. We can also think of it as steadfast, resolve, being here for ourselves, no matter what. It's that yes, we can um, factor of awakening. Encourage not giving up on ourselves when things get difficult. And it enables us to continue through the difficulties that we face in our practice, whether it's pain or boredom or resistance or fear of failure, whatever it is, we just keep coming back. And it's not about forcing or striving, as we've been saying. It is about this relaxed attention. And we keep refining it because it's so easy to get subtle levels of striving. And they get mixed in with wanting something from the practice or with trying to gain something, with expectation. And we can be aware of it physically and mentally. When the energy is out of balance, sometimes if it's low, it can be mentally in a dull mind or a sleepy mind and the body is tired and fatigued and heavy. Or if it's too high, then there's racing thoughts or agitation in the body. But when it's balanced, we can really open and um, just let it be and become a channel for this effortless energy. So the next quality that um, I'd like to talk about is piti. As we pay close attention more and more, and the energy and momentum build, they become intensely, we become intensely interested and fascinated with the object. The strength and the energy build together. We get joy and confidence, and our attention becomes rapt. It's the rapture Sally was talking about last night. And there's a wholehearted engagement and, um, and well-being. And it's very compelling, and it's much easier to stay connected. It feels effortless. And, but piti um, can be both pleasant and unpleasant, depending on the balance of energy underneath it. Sometimes when there's too much energy, it can feel very agitating and a bit rough, and it can be unpleasant. And sometimes it can also be very smooth and delightful. And it's important not to get hooked, either an attachment to it or aversion to it. And also, um, when the rapture is there, we can get absorbed into anything. Sometimes it's not always the breath that we can get absorbed into. Um, I've had an experience of getting completely absorbed into tying my shoelaces 
and sitting in the cloakroom for about 20 minutes, totally in love with my shoelaces, and just this delight in the beauty of shoelaces, which is not particularly leading to liberation. (laughs) And in the same way, once at the forest refuge, I was sitting in the hall, and um, very, very quiet, very peaceful, and somebody came and turned the vacuum cleaner on right outside the hall. And normally, that would have filled me with aversion. Um, but pity is a wonderful antidote to aversion. And I didn't feel aversion to the vacuum cleaner. I got totally in- absorbed into the rhythm of the vacuum cleaner, and it became very sensuous and wonderful. And that also doesn't lead to liberation. And so it's really paying attention to... Um, that's why the instruction was stay with the breath. And to notice what it is that our rapt attention is building around. PT does bring faith and confidence because it's a joy that isn't dependent on getting anything on external conditions. I've had a lot of um, struggle with PT in my practice. Um, My particular metabolism is such that it comes to me fairly quickly as I start to get concentrated. And it can get very intense. And in my early days of my practice, I used a fair amount of efforting and striving because, you know, there was, I wanted to get somewhere. And as a result, there was a lot of pity. And it sort of brought with it a lot of altered states and very intense sensations, some of which were wonderful and some of which were horrible. And so I would get caught in either aversion to it or intense attachment to it. And one retreat recently, I was sitting and with a lot of piti, and I wanted to be in a state of equanimity. I wanted to be much in a much different place along the path. So I was irritated and frustrated with the piti, and I wanted it to go away. And the more I resisted it, of course, the more it got. And at one point, I had this sense of being in a hurricane, and just like this flood of energy just pouring through me. And at some point, discriminating wisdom came in to see what was, where it was I was caught, which was, which was in resistance. And as I let go into it, there was just this um, flood of everything being washed through, like the energy washing through fear, anxiety, doubt, all the hindrances in a way were being washed away as I let go and let it do, the energy do what it was going to do, as I rode the waves of the piti. And at some point, um, it was just like identities were being washed away, all the things I thought about myself or opinions all being washed away. And even becoming the great one who was having this experience was washed away, all of it. And I came to a very still place, which was really peaceful and tranquil and free from hindrances, the stillness. And what I learned was many different ways of working with piti. And some of them are um, inclining gently to stillness, but without agenda, and not, not getting caught in fighting or struggling with it, and not holding on to it. And sometimes it's possible to find the stillness in the breath that's beneath all that energy, 
or the stillness in the eye of the storm, so to speak. In the, um, sometimes it can help to um, got carried away with the energy of pity. <laughs> so sometimes it can help to really just bring in mindfulness and notice with the discriminating wisdom um, what it is that's happening, that's pushing. It's almost like sometimes there's a push to get deeper. And that pushing is increasing the energy in a way that's not skillful. Or there's a leaning into the next moment. There's an anticipating or wanting something. And that leaning and that wanting is moving the energy, is increasing the energy so that we get out of balance. But the piti also, the rapture also, it can be very delightful and joyful and pleasant. And we can cultivate it by inclining towards um, happiness, inclining towards gratitude, and um, gently being with the energy, not pushing, but just trusting. Trusting that the gentle connecting and sustaining is taking us there on its own. We don't have to do anything. So then as that starts to quiet down, as the PT naturally starts to quiet down and the rapture naturally does, the energy starts to calm down, it inclines us into tranquility. And thinking starts to decrease and the mind starts to become very still and calm. And it's really soothing and peaceful and a relief. And just as with the rapture we can experience the sensations of energy in the body and the energy in the mind. In the same way with tranquility, the body starts to feel calm and still, and the mind becomes calm and still, and unruffled, and lighter, and clearer. And there's a softness, and a spaciousness, and a contentment. So there's a sense of ease as that happens. also can be seductive and we can want to get it back. Often when we've had experiences of stillness like that, it's so refreshing and so healing, we want to come in and repeat that the next sit and try and create it. But it simply comes out of the conditions of our practice, of connecting, of sustaining, of not wanting. And in fact, it's a wonderful antidote to desire because of the stillness. Sometimes we don't recognize it when it's here. We confuse the stillness of calm with boredom. Nothing's happening. I want a more interesting moment. We can be, get to be intensity junkies, and this culture feeds that. We want something more exciting to be happening. There's a nice cartoon um, 
that I saw years ago with this man is looking up, looking very surprised, going, what was that? What was that? And at the bottom it says, Bob experiences a peaceful moment. (laughs) Sort of rushed by. But when we can incline our mind to it and particularly pay attention to the spaces between breaths, to the stillness around us, it helps incline the mind to calm. As with the other factors of enlightenment, we want to know, is it present or not? And what are we doing to either starve it or feed it? There are ways of being on retreat that can starve the factor of enlightenment and feed restlessness or feed agitation. Sometimes when we have that, we get caught in that place of um, there's somewhere better to be. I should be walking now, I should be sitting now, I should be walking in this walking place. No, it would be better to be walking in that walking place. Or um, I think I should just be with my breath like this. No, it would be better to be doing it whole body breathing. So when we get caught in um, there's some better way, it feeds the agitation. Sometimes it can take the form of subtle striving, of that leaning into the next moment, sort of leaning forward all the time, what's next? Sometimes, um, for me, it's like an energetic lean forward, almost of anticipating. Something will have happened, and I'm anticipating what's going to happen next. Even when there's stillness, there'll be an anticipation of the next moment, of you know, writing the future script. And so when you notice that's happening, just to lean back almost, almost to physically lean back and just take a breath. When we frequently give attention to calm, that cultivates it. And in the Anapanasati Sutta, in the first tetrad, one of the instructions is breathing in, calming the body formations. Breathing out, calming the bodily formations. So we can intentionally use calming to calm the body, to calm the mind. It's very helpful. I found after um, some years of practice that I was missing out the calm part sometimes. I would really be being with the breath and energetically and getting you know, into rapture and sort of as a way to get to concentration and missing the piece that calm leads to concentration. And so I found it really helpful on some retreats to really begin, for me, paying attention to calm more. Calming, calming just intentionally bringing that in more and being aware of that quality of calming as a way of um, connecting with that sense of stillness. And calming doesn't mean like you'd say to a kid, calm down, like a pushing down of the energy, but more an inviting of calm. So it could be an inviting of just that vast sense of calm around or stillness around that opening into more spaciousness, inviting that, rather than being contracted and intense 
It's, um, so it's, it's helpful to incline. Sometimes it can be helpful if you feel agitated inside to notice the stillness in the room. The P, it says associate with calm friends in the suttas, to associate with people who are quiet or still as a way of, of taking that in, enhancing it. We can bring it into our walking practice. Can bring, it can bring composure and ease into the walking. Eugene was mentioning standing, and standing practice brings stillness. Just bringing, bringing that stillness in before we start to walk, connecting, sustaining, stilling. It's also important, though, to balance the factor of tranquility. Because what I found on that particular retreat that I was using calm, that it really did bring me to concentration. It was very, I was quite amazed about how it could do that. But also, the other side of it was I kept falling asleep. So I would alternate between being very clear and concentrated and completely asleep. (laughs) And so it's important, again, to bring in um, Dhamma Vichaya and notice what's happening. The mindfulness sees that sleepiness and the Dhamma Vichaya investigates what's happening. How is that happening that I'm falling asleep? Oh, I need to bring in more investigation, more interest. And, and, and notice the balance in the body and the balance in the mind, both, because they can be different. The body can be very still and the mind can be very busy. Um, the mind can be asleep and dopey, um, and the body not so. That calm spaciousness allows the tangles to untangle. Things start to separate out and become more clear. And we can let the judgments be, let the struggles be. It's really a relief to relax into it. It can help to cultivate it sometimes just by looking at the sky, just really having that sense of spaciousness that the sky does, having the sense of keeping everything very simple, releasing into the support of the earth, that letting go over and over. And it's an invitation to relax into the wider spaciousness around us. Less doing, less pushing to deepen our concentration, but more relaxing, opening, and allowing it to deepen. Um, On that same last retreat, I was quite calm and peaceful, and I had this beautiful images of of cartoon figures of all the hindrances. Sally was talking a little bit about that last night. And all of them were soothed and calmed and reassured by this sense of calm. They were completely subdued. You know, sort of um, restlessness was just relaxed, and aversion was all happy and smiling and desire was completely kind of replete and fulfilled, and nothing was wanting. And so it's temporary, because 
these states are temporary, but it's certainly easeful when the hindrances are abated for a little while. So tranquility is the conditioning factor for concentration. And as with calm, there's a soft, still openness that's there. And here, all of our experience, physical, mental, emotional, is gathered together in the experience of the breath. It's also important that our concentration is right concentration, and we'll be talking more about this. There are many different states of concentration that can come through our practice, and not all of them are skillful. Some of them have, um, can, some of them can be um, sort of very still, deep states that can come from calm, but they're, com- they're sort of what I call cow concentration. You're sort of completely gonzo. There may be th- no, no thoughts, but there's not really much awareness, and there's no brightness or alertness there. You're sort of, duh, but you're very still. And that's not so useful. And so it's to notice, um, it's wonderful to, to get more concentrated, but we need to also bring in the other factors of awakening so that we know that it's right concentration. When we also get goal-oriented, it can get contracted and forceful. We're trying to push to get deeper. And again, the investigation of dhammas shows us and helps us clarify um, where we're caught in balancing concentration. When our concentration flows well from the investigation, the effort and the piti and the tranquility, it's beautiful and it becomes very malleable and flexible and bright and clear. And because it's become so bright and clear, we're actually more aware of the other factors and it's easier to, to fine-tune them. So we become, our, it's amazing how flexible the mind becomes and how much easier it is to work and work with things and effortless. And we see that concentration and investigation together are purifying the hindrances. They're releasing these obstructions. Concentration and mindfulness um, enable the insights to penetrate more deeply. And our habit patterns become less sticky. The things start to release and dissolve. And from our concentration, as the calm and concentration develop more more, um, fully, the mind becomes equanimous, smooth, steady, and unwavering. And it's, it's this connected, responsive, and clear. We're able to be fully present with whatever it is that arises. Whatever we experience, we're experiencing with balance. Nothing can disturb the evenness of mind. And we have the capacity to include everything. So, whereas whereas before people coming in and out of the room late for a sitting disturbed you, now you might be aware of the coming and going, but the mind's at ease still. It's not getting caught in either pushing away or holding on not getting caught in temptation or resistance. If pain arises in the body or mind, 
It's just pain. It's not disturbing this even quietness of mind. One analogy is it's like throwing a ball through space. The space isn't disturbed by the ball being thrown, flown, thrown through it. So it's a profound letting be, sitting quietly, resting in the middle of everything that arises. Resting in the middle of imperfection, resting in the middle of uncertainty. It's bright, it's clear, it's even. And as we progress through the seven factors of enlightenment towards equanimity, this parallels the development as we go through the jhanic factors and then the jhanas to equanimity. And we'll be talking about that more. Mindfulness, as this happens, becomes very clear and bright and even more non-reactive and even more refined. Energy and tranquility are harmonized. Faith and wisdom are harmonized. We see more and more clearly and we're able to make more and more subtle differentiations. And so we can apply our energy even more effectively in a very balanced way. The tranquility deepens and the concentration deepens. All of them feed on each other and as the equanimity strengthens. So it's a positive feedback loop. As each develops, it leads to the other strengthening and developing more. And so as the de- development of each one becomes more full, it's a gateway to this liberating wisdom, to going beyond from the near to the far shore. But equanimity doesn't come easy. We can't make it happen. It does arise, and some, it, it arises um, for a short while, but it comes and goes. You have a balance of mind a little bit, then it disappears, and then a little bit again. But it is gradually strengthening bit by bit. We're more able to be with things as they are. We're more able to be with the energy imbalances as they are and be less upset as the energy comes and goes. We're more able to be with whether our concentration is strong or not. We're less reactive. We're able to incline our mind towards balance and be able to know, oh, mindfulness is not present. Now I know how to bring it to presence. And, oh, this is what being with restlessness is like difficulty, we're able to allow things to be the way they are, and that in turn strengthens the other qualities. So, for example, suppose we're disappointed that a state that we want isn't here. We want the last sitting back again. And we're able to see, oh, this is how it is. Disappointment is like this. Wanting is like that. And as the factors strengthen, that releases and we settle back down. We see what our preferences are without having to have them. We know them as preferences, but we're not caught in them. So we're not so caught with our mood up and down. We're not 
our, our happiness isn't so dependent on things being the way that we want. There's a truer sense of ease. Ajahn Sumedho says of equanimity, the mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So all these qualities are inherent in us and it's possible to enhance and develop each of them. We can't make them happen through striving, but it's amazing they do actually arise as a fruit of our practice. The only thing we need to do is provide the conditions and the conditions are very simple. It's that initial seed of mindfulness and the connecting and the sustaining over and over, patiently and kindly, moment by moment. Frequent careful attention sets the cascade in motion. Acknowledging whether the qualities are present or absent, inclining the mind. That just that is sincere intention and Um, motivation to be present, to be alive, to be in this moment. We start to be aware for ourselves of what blocks, what enhances. We start to see where balance is needed. Sometimes just the observing itself brings balance. And we start to find for ourselves a little bit of mastery. and I've been amazed at the more, that's what the value of a concentration retreat is as our concentration deepens, we start to see that it is possible to have mastery over these qualities in the mind and almost to, to fine tune them. I know for myself, I, I felt so excited when I realized I had these tools I could, I could change, I could make the, um, I could move them around and alter them and balance them when my mind was really still and concentrated. This is um, a beautiful piece from Sariputra. I can't find it. Somewhere here. Well, what happens, since I can't find it, (laughs) is that um, he knows that, he says, I, if, I want, if I want to develop a factor of enlightenment in the morning, I develop that factor of enlightenment. If I want to develop a certain factor of enlightenment at noon, I develop that factor of enlightenment. If I want to in the evening, I develop that factor of enlightenment. And suppose it's, um, I, I say, I want to have mindfulness. I develop mindfulness. It's measureless, it's fully perfected, and while it persists, I understand mindfulness is present. 
And when it abates, I understand that it's abated for a particular reason. And he does that for each of the factors. At will, he develops whichever one he wants, when he wants. And when they disappear, he knows why. And he said, it's as though I was, um, I was a wealthy monarch with a, with a wardrobe full of beautiful many-colored clothing. And I could choose whatever clothes I wanted to wear three times a day. In this way, three times a day, I choose whatever factors of, mind, of enlightenment that I want to develop. And so we can begin to get a taste of what's possible to bring alive these beautiful qualities. And they are also said in the suttas to be a cure for illness. And this is in three different places where three of the different disciples are ill, Kasapa and Mahamogalana. And the Buddha goes to them and says, each in different times, I hope you are bearing up and getting better. The painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing, and that their subsiding and not increasing is discerned. And the bhikkhu concern says, no, they're not subsiding, they're not getting better, they're increasing, and their subsiding is not being discerned. And so the Buddha gives the teachings on, um, on the seven factors of enlightenment. And then they're amazed by this, um, that they start to feel better. And one of the elders who's listening closely remembers the first time that he became awakened and the seven factors of enlightenment became manifest. And as he had that memory, his blood became clear, his bodily humors were purified, and the disease departed from his body like drops of water fallen on a lotus leaf. And so may the factors of awakening develop for each of us and shine clearly. So the invitation is to explore for ourselves how these beautiful qualities can enhance our practice, to notice which ones are present, to notice whether they're balanced or not, and to begin to incline our minds towards them, and to see how it can enhance our practice. To begin with, they're just faint, but we can get them to be more and more fully developed so that the mind itself is shining and bright. Further and further understanding happen, and life-changing insights can happen. Greater harmony, the greatest freedom and peace possible can happen. We can have moments of profound joy oneness, and unshakable balance. So just take a moment now in the stillness to notice the presence of these qualities. Is there mindfulness here? Is 
their investigation of Dhamma? Curiosity, wakefulness, interest. How is energy manifesting? Might it be possible to have a wholehearted engagement in practice in a balanced way? Is the quality of joy present? What might it be like to incline the mind towards this lightness, the possibility of appreciation, gratitude, What is the quality of tranquility like for you? Is it possible to incline the mind and the body to stillness? As that stillness deepens, opens, Is the mind becoming more unified, collected, clear? And how is the factor of equanimity? Might it be possible to rest? at ease with things as they are, however they are right now. Inclining the mind towards that possibility. May all these beautiful qualities serve for our awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.